let me get us started tonight and then uh, I'll kind of hand over the reins to you. So um, everybody, thank you all for coming tonight. Um, we just wanted to say uh, thank you. And uh, just a quick thing, a few housekeeping things before we kind of get started um, is first up on our schedule tonight, uh, we'll include uh, hearing Bill speak from six till seven. Um, and then second after that, after the talk ends from seven till 7.30, we'll have some time for Q&A. So at any point during the talk, if you have a question or anything like that, you would like to ask Bill down below on the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button, click that uh, and you can ask questions and we'll try to hit as many questions as we can tonight in the time allotted that we have. Um, once the night is complete, uh, you'll see a survey that'll pop up. This will just take two minutes. This will just help us just to gather valuable information to continue to know what the best content is for the future. So if you don't mind, please take that at the end. It'll literally take two minutes. Um, for all the parents who are on here, I know some on here are not parents yet, but for all the parents, guardians or caregivers, foster parents, anybody like that, um, who are on right now, we recently sent out a survey to determine how all our families are doing at Redeemer. So um, the final date to complete that survey is this next Monday, the 17th. Uh, if you didn't receive that survey, just reach out to me, uh, dane at redeemernw.org, or I'm sure all of you have my number so you can text me or anything like that, or even in the chat, let me know, and I'll make sure you get that survey. Uh, lastly, uh, for those who are interested, um, after the talk tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to start a few book study groups uh, that'll work through um, Bill's book, Parenting with Words of Grace. And, and if I can say personally, I would highly recommend the book. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, reading it a couple times over the years. So if anybody is interested in learning more about those book studies or would like to join us, you can comment in the chat. You can email me. Just let me know if that is something of interest of you. So Without further ado, let me introduce you all to Bill, uh, author of many different books, including one of my favorites, Parenting with Words of Grace. Uh, he earned his bachelor's in computer engineering at Drexel University, master of divinity in biblical counseling at Westminster Theological Seminary, and a doctorate in sociology at Rutgers University. He is a pastor, author, retreat speaker who has served several churches been a faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, and taught practical theology at West Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, Bill, it is uh, honestly, I know we've only talked only for the last few months, but it is a great pleasure to say welcome, and I'm so grateful you're here to join us tonight. So um, I do have to say this, though, Bill, I, I told you I was going to ask you this question before I let you get started. So since you live near Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia is known for the Philly cheesesteak. And I need to ask you a very serious question. I, I know everybody's dying to know, but uh, it'll help to alleviate the debate that's gone on in Philly for years. So which place is a better Philly cheesesteak, Pat's or Gino's? I knew I, as soon as you started down that road, I knew where we were going. <laughs> so this will absolutely destroy all of that hype that you just built up. I've had neither one. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but having grown up in the area, uh, steak sandwiches are, they're, they're all over. Uh, and, and every one of them, from my vantage point, has, has its own little special. They really do. 
They really do. I can be, I've had a few and my goodness, they do not taste the same ever. <laughs> the, the best stories that I've heard are people who leave the area who've grown up with steak sandwiches and they go somewhere else and order a steak sandwich and they get the odd look from somebody and they come, the guy brings out a, a roll with this, you know, inch and a half sirloin thing on it. And <laughs> like, that's, that's not what. No, that's not it. Well, uh, feel free. Um, you, we'll uh, do a hard stop at seven and then we'll uh, open up for Q and A, but the floor is all yours and uh, I'll let you go. Great. Guys, it's great to be with you. I can't see anybody. Um, so I'm just going to talk and Dane's going to be sort of your representative so that I can tell whether or not I'm boring people. Years ago, um, I was working as a counselor. I was talking to a colleague of mine. She was celebrating her 20th wedding anniversary. And she said, you know, it's really weird to think about, but if John and I had had kids when we got married, they'd be in college by now. I looked at her and said, Nina, if Sally and I had had kids when we got married, they'd be in counseling by now. And that's just sort of who Sally and I are. We are not gifted parents. I know I wrote a book, but we are not people who longed all of our lives to be parents. We didn't come from abusive families, but our families didn't train us to be parents. So we had no idea what parenting was about. And God's just been very gracious to us. You discover the scriptures full of it uh, in terms of here's what to do, here's what to say. And that's really been very, very sweet for us. We have three kids. God in his infinite mercy and kindness gave us a first child to start with. We waited five years because we were petrified. And our first child was just off the charts hard. <laughs> she, she didn't eat, literally. She didn't sleep. She didn't play. She was really good at fussing. Uh, we just, we never talked about having a good day with her. Around age four or so, we started thinking in terms of that was a good couple of hours or that was a decent afternoon. Uh, and Dan and I were talking earlier about all the different parenting books that you read. And I got kind of cynical you know, in my imagination, I just threw away half of them because I, they didn't match our experience. Second child comes along, he's a dream. He ate, he took naps, he slept at night, he was fun to play with. And I thought, oh, okay. I, I dug the parenting books out of the trash till he was four, at which point I just threw them away again because this child changed underneath of us. Did not need to dig them out for the third because he didn't even like me. Uh, and so for the better part of a year, parenting him was pretty easy because my wife had to do all of it. One of the things that I've loved parenting uh, is that as you take care of kids, they start talking. And those of you who have kids, you know this, at first they're babbling, but then they start to actually engage you and they express themselves, their desires, their wants, their likes, their dislikes. And you start to have this incredible interaction with them that is completely unpredictable. I came into the kitchen one time our young, our oldest was there sitting in her high chair and she just, you know, little curls and everything in her hair. And I just, I thought she was adorable. And so I kissed her on the top of her head and I said, kissable, sort of my new benediction that I waved over her. And within half a second, she turned that word right around and she told me more kissable. And you think about that interaction for just a moment. I created a word that no one's from my experience, has heard before, used it, and, and I used it in such a way, reached across the space between two people, used it to connect, and she received that word, processed this word that she's never heard before, and then she used it in furthering the relationship. You realize that so much of our interaction with words is what builds relationships. When I talk to people about building relationships, 
I tend to find people on one of two ends. On the one end, there are people who think, well, okay, we need to have the big event. So let's save up way too much money uh, and spend it all going out or going on some kind of fantastic vacation. And we expect that relationship will happen out of that interaction. On the other hand are people who are like, yeah, I don't know, it just sort of does. You feed them, you water them, and at some point you just connect. You read through the scripture and you discover that relationships are built in the mundane parts of life, that it's the interactions, uh, it's, it's how you greet people, it's how you um, ask questions, it's how you reach across and engage them. And those relationships start convert with conversation when they're little, those conversations get more and more and more as time goes on. I was very surprised. Our kids are all in that um, young adult launch phase. And I was kind of foolish. Again, I told you I'm not a natural parent. I figured when they were about 11 years old that, you know, a lot of my responsibility was over, right? I mean, they knew how to feed themselves. They knew how to uh, clean the table, do their homework, get up in the morning, wash themselves, dress themselves. What I didn't realize is that now the real work of relating was going to take place because now they didn't have bedtimes uh, that were, you know, sort of before mine. And now we started to have these half hour conversations, these hour conversations, hour and a half conversations <laughs> at the end of the day after I'm worn out and exhausted. And I started to discover that in all of those kind of interactions, I had to give some kind of content. There were things that I had to say that would help my child who's made in God's image orient to God's world, orient to how they should live in it, how they should not live in it. I had to give content. But as I'm giving content at that same moment, I'm also providing reasons for them either to embrace that content or I'm giving them reasons to reject that content. And those reasons are always relational in nature. Very important to realize that at the same time that you're using words to give people advice, content, those same words are giving them reasons that are either going to say, yeah, I want that and I want to buy into that, or no, I don't trust what you're saying because I don't trust you. Let me give an illustration. After church, when we were ready to visit with my parents, my mom and pop up for Easter dinner, and when my family needs to coordinate our schedules, I try to give us lots of advance notice so that everybody can plan their lives accordingly. So as we're getting ready to leave, I came through the living room, three kids are in the living room. I say, okay, guys, make sure you got all your stuff together because we're going to go in about 10 minutes. I finish doing my things. I come back 10 minutes later as I'm about to walk out the door. I call out, okay, everybody get in the van. And immediately all three of them jump up from what they're doing and they race in every direction possible except toward the van. So one ran to the bathroom, another went to collect books and toys for the trip, someone else needed to get their shoes. And I'm left standing there in the middle of the living room alone with no one getting in the van. That's a really important moment because what I do next, regardless of what I say or don't say, regardless of the content that I give or don't give, what I'm about to say is gonna communicate three things. And if I'm not aware of those three things, I have the ability to destroy all of my friendships and my relationships, whether that's with my kids or with other relatives, adults, et cetera. Here's the three things that I'm always communicating. First, I'm communicating something about who I am as a person. 
Jesus is very clear, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as I communicate, I'm telling people, here's what I value. This is what's important to me. This is what's not important to me. This is where my commitments lie. This is what I think is essential to life. And my words are always telling everybody else around me, this is the inside of Bill. This is what I am like. This is the kind of person that I am. I can't help that. Even if I keep my mouth shut, then I'm saying, what is it that I value? I don't want you to know me. And so I'm not going to let you know me. I, I'm always doing that. Communication is always telling me, telling other people about me. Second, however, my words communicate the place that other people have in my world. And so my words tell you how I value people, what I value people for, how I treat people, how I expect relationships to work, the role that I play in others' lives, the role they play in mine. And so I'm not only telling you about who I am as a person, I'm telling you about what a friendship with me is like. What I'm saying is always going to talk about me relationally. And that then brings us to the third thing. What I'm communicating as I speak in that moment is I'm saying, this is what the future is probably going to be like. That I will most likely treat you in the future pretty much like I just did. That I will use my words later like I'm using my words now. And in that sense, what I say, what I don't say, the content that I give that I don't give, it has an implied invitation in it. And that invitation goes this way. It says, based on how you just experienced me, would you like some more of me? Would you like to keep having a friendship with me based on how I've just talked? Or have you had enough <laughs> and you'd really rather be done with me? And as soon as you possibly can, you're going to get away from me. I'm going to underline a point that I already said, you can't avoid that every time that you engage. You can't avoid the fact that you are issuing that invitation every single time you open your mouth. Whether you say something or you don't say something, you're teaching people what you're like, what you're like in a relationship, and you're giving them reasons to decide whether or not they want to continue that relationship with you. Or when they get old enough, when they individuate, when they have enough emotional maturity, when they have enough other friends, when their bank account is big enough, they say, yes, see, I'm, 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 I'm out. Thinking about that future impact changes the way that I deal with things in the present. So for instance, I know that if my, my children experience me as negative, if, if they experience me as harsh, strict, overbearing, joyless, gloomy, never satisfied, depressed, or needy, what am I communicating? I'm communicating that I value and cherish something deep inside that has nothing to do with them. And instead, I'm letting them know what is it that I really want out of life. It's some kind of hassle-free living. I want no interruptions. And I want you to give me the love and the respect that I feel entitled to because of all the kinds of all the things that I've done for you. Now, if that's their experience of me. I probably should not be too surprised if they don't want to have a lot to do with me now. And if as they get older, their friends are more interesting and engaging to them than I am. In other words, I'm giving them no good reason to want more of me. On the other hand, if growing up in my house, they experience me as candid, frank, nurturing, caring, gentle, fun, concerned, engaging, trustworthy, truthful, wise, those things come out of a different set of values on my part from within my own heart. 
And I'm letting them know that I'm more interested in their well-being than I am in my own comfort, my own ease, so that they can have the opportunity to mature into everything that God's wanted them to be. Now, if they experience those kinds of words, then they're right, or at least wise, to say, wow, there, there's probably more of that in the future. And so there's a reason to keep coming back, and I will have given them a reason to stay connected. You have to be very careful here. I'm saying it's a reason, not a guarantee. Just because I do all the right things does not mean that my child's going to like me. I think that's one of the really hard parts about parenting that we have to come to grips with. It's this opportunity to be very much like God is, where we give and we uh, allow other people the goodness of experiencing love without necessarily demanding or expecting that they will respond the way that we want them to. If the only reason I'm loving you is so that I get a guaranteed response, I'm not really loving you. I'm loving what I hope you'll give me later. So I'm not offering us a, a guarantee. What I am saying is that our words communicate reasons to other people. And if you think about it, what's more likely that they're gonna to wanna to continue a relationship with me based on the positive or based on the negative, you realize, no, of course, it, it, the more positive I am, the more reasons I give them. Now, that's the theory. The theory sounds, I think it sounds pretty good. In the moment, however, when you're faced with a situation by your child, there are so many quick, bad decisions you can make. Go back to my living room on Easter afternoon. I'm standing there alone. My family has scattered. I told them to get in the van. There are a couple options that I can take in that moment. So just put them on a polar sort of opposite. Option one, I come down on hard on people. And so I stand there in my living room yelling, I said, get in the van, I mean now. Not that I've ever said it, so I don't really know how that sat. Or I could follow people around, badgering and nagging them. What do you think you're doing? I know you heard me, what's wrong with you? Why don't you ever listen? Or maybe I ratchet it up a little bit more strongly. Your problem is that you never listen. You don't care about anyone except yourself. List goes on of all of the heavy handed tactics that I've tried in the past that I could use again. Now, what happens if I go down that road again? Here's the horrible thing about it. It'll probably work. They'll probably get in the van. If for no other reason just then to escape me, but there's also gonna be what? There's gonna be silence probably in the van. There's gonna be fear. There's gonna be resentment. They're gonna feel that they've been mistreated. There's gonna be no relationship. They're gonna hate the way that I lead the family and I'm gonna teach them, this is what's true about authority. It's overbearing all the time. You don't want anything to do with that. Something much worse, however, and that is that I'm gonna communicate a false gospel because I'm not just a father. I'm also an image of God. I'm God's representative. Paul's going to say it this way, I'm God's ambassador, and I'm going to teach my family in that moment, here's the Jesus that I know. Whenever I mess up, he's harsh. He's abusive, he's crushing, he can't stand it when I do something wrong, it upsets his agenda, and then because he didn't get what he wanted, he lashes out, he will not let up until he's beaten me back into place, you can expect him to do the same with you. In other words, I can speak words to my kids that sound what? They sound honest. They sound direct. They sound truthful. You don't care about anyone except yourself, but there's an element of truthfulness in that. 
but that's not truth that has anything to do with my child's best interest. Why, why would I use the, that phrase, you don't care about anyone except yourself? It's because I want to use that to accomplish my own agenda, which is I want them to get in the van and I want to stop being ignored, disrespected in my own house. Now, in that sense, I might be authentic, I might be genuine, but I'm authentically and genuinely out for my own interest. In that moment, I've not I'm not concerned for Christ's interest. I'm not concerned for my child's interest. And so you could say, in a sense, it's truthful speech, but it's truthful speech that has no concern for the other person. And in that sense, it's truth without love. Now, we've all experienced that. We have words for that kind of truthfulness, the, the, the way of speaking in a way that calls attention to someone else's failings or their weaknesses, words that hurt and embarrass. We call that sarcasm. We call it criticism. It's a kind of truth, but it's a truth that tears down. And when you read through the scripture, you realize that's not the kind of truth that God speaks. When God speaks truth, it's to make people stronger, not to make them weaker. So that's option one, bad option one in my living room. Bad option two, just as bad, I could do nothing. I go passive. I watch everyone scatter until they slowly trickle out to the van their own good time. This time, the dialogue is not explosive and not to everyone else around. It's more internal, but it's just as poisonous. I start to whine. I whine to myself. No one ever listens to me. I do all the work around here. I provide for everyone else. I try to get things ready. I try to make things nice. They don't care. I don't even know why I bother. You can hear the self-pity. The worst is there's nothing I can do about it except put up with it till what? Till they become 18 and I can finally kick them out of the house. Guess I'll just go sit in the van by myself and hope they don't make me wait too long. This option does not sound as loud, aggressive. It's just as broken. Shreds relationship, drives me into myself, and it paints an equally distorted picture of God because it communicates, here's who Jesus is. He pulls away in self-pity whenever you hurt him. He doesn't like it when you ignore him, but he has no real power plan to help you. So he just sort of distances himself from you. He figures he has to guard his own heart since he has to put up with you being hopelessly broken. So go ahead, do whatever you like, whenever you like, but just realize you're on your own when you do that. Now in this option, I see the problem clearly, but I'm not willing to speak honestly to anyone about it. And when that happens, just like truth without love doesn't care for someone else, this time I'm really not thinking about anyone else's best interests either. See, if you're in trouble and I will not make the effort to help you see the problem, I really don't care about you because I care about something else more. It's not just that I don't want to hurt you. It's not just that I don't want to make waves, but I want those things more than I want to help you in what you're dealing with. And so maybe I want peace at all costs more than I want to see you built up and strengthened. I want that kind of peace more than I want to see you protected. I want hassle-free living more than I want to see you become the person that the Lord gave his life to produce. And when, you, when that happens, when that's driving my heart, you realize that isn't love either. So what is it when someone knows what is true, but they won't say it out of fear? We have nasty words for this. This is called hypocrisy. It's mealy-mouthedness. It's sentimentality. 
This is love that keeps you from being as strong as you possibly could be. And therefore, it's not love. So when you see that truth without love tears people down, love without truth keeps them weak, you realize you really can't have truth or love unless what? Unless you have both of them at the same time. And that's why Paul insists on putting them together in Ephesians chapter 4, 15, when he says that the Christian is always shooting for a third way of speaking that brings together truth and love. And the reason for that is because his goal is maturity. Here's the whole verse. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, if we read that passage together, you would realize that Paul is setting things up. He's saying there is a way of being immature and childish to be this wave that is tossed to and fro in the sea by the wind. And he says, here's the antidote, and it is to speak to each other. We have to talk to each other. We have to talk truth and love in the church. And what's really surprising to me in this passage is he says, this is the means of our spiritual growth in this passage. You see means of spiritual growth and maturity in other passages, reading the scripture, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, going through suffering, prayer, all of those are means of spiritual growth. But in this passage, Paul says the primary way that we grow is we talk to each other. Now, if it's vital for the church family as a whole that we speak the truth in love to each other, it's critical for your family as well. If it's vital for your relationships in the church, it's vital for your friendships uh, with, with other believers also. Now, when you realize that the goal is to have both truth and love, then I think that pushes all of us. Some of us are going to have to work at being a little more truthful. Others of us are going to have to work at being a little bit more compassionate. So here's one just sort of thought experiment to, tonight. As you think about your life, if you find yourself typically using truth that tears down and if you want to see your conversations with your kids mature, if you want to give them reasons to actually embrace what you're saying to them, you have to practice speaking a kind of truth that builds them up. Now, I find it helpful to think about that as that means I need to learn how to encourage others. I grew up in a, a world where tearing each other down, that was what got points. And so for me, it's been very important to learn how do I go about doing this? How do I enter into someone else's world and urge them along in a way that they actually think that's a good thing. I'd like to be urged along. And, and so if for, for those of you who struggle on this end, like myself, you want to learn how to be someone who encourages others. On the other hand, and, and I fall off on both sides here, if you find yourself more typically holding back your words in a way that keeps others weak, you need to practice love that speaks up. And again, for me, it's helpful to think, okay, what does that mean? It means I need to be more honest. I need to bring the outside persona that I project more in line with what I'm actually thinking inside so that I don't have two different bills, the one that will tell you nice things and think ugly things inside, but who learns to speak a little bit more honestly to you in a way that actually cares about you. So that's the vision, I think. If we want to build relationships with our kids that give them a chance of embracing what we have to say, it's speaking the truth in love to them. Now, 
just a brief word, why is it so hard to fall off on one side or the other instead of bringing these two together? And I think one of the reasons, as I've talked to other people, as I thought about this on my own, it's that very few of us have experienced this kind of speech. For those of us either who grew up in the church and, and we heard a certain kind of gospel that really wasn't the gospel, or others of us who became Christians and came into the church later, we haven't really heard what truth and love look sound like. Um, instead, we've been taught over the years to relate in a variety of other ways. What does that mean? It means that when we are squeezed and pressed in those moments, like in my living room, there is a whole bunch of little voices in our head that say, this is what would be appropriate in this moment. Say something that will threaten the kids to get them in the van. Say something that will whine, that will manipulate the kids to get them in the van. Say something that will argue, that will debate, that will insult, complain, lash out, explain, defend. And so in that moment, it just feels normal because what? That, that's what you've experienced over the course of your lifetime. That's why even when you can see that that kind of way of speaking is gonna just drive people away, you still fall into it. One of the, the hardest realities is to recognize that you can only give to others what you yourself have received. So if you've not received truth and love together, you don't know what that sounds like in that moment, so you default to what you are used to. Now, does that mean you're doomed? If you were raised and never heard someone speaking truth and love to you, no. And that's where the gospel is beautiful. Because the gospel is not just here's how to get to know God and here's how to enter into heaven. But the gospel is now you're in a relationship with a God who does know how to speak truth and love to you. He brings you into his family and he says, you are now my child. I am now your parent. You had other parents. Those were supposed to be dim images of me. All of us have blown it. I've blown it. You've blown it. None of us have gotten it right. But God comes along. He says, that's okay in one sense, because now I'm going to speak to you in ways that will help you understand what truth and love really are. And he obligates himself to speaking to us in these kinds of ways. He takes that responsibility on himself. And it's as you live in a gracious relationship with God that you start to go, oh, that this is what grace sounds like. And, and, and this is the kind of thing that, that I'm longing to hear. This is the kind of thing that fills up my heart. This is the kind of thing that I start to resonate with because his spirit is now inside of me. And I now embrace this. And you know what? My, my words start to sound a little bit more like his. And you realize that as God speaks to you in scripture, he's revealing the same three things to you that you do when you speak. So he tells you what he is like, what his heart is like. He tells you what he values, that he values redemption, that he values restoration, that he values rescue, and that he longs for those things in this world to the point where he is not willing to have a new creation unless he first sacrifices in order to bring all those things about. He also tells you the place that you have in that world. He talks to you about how he sees you and values you, that he wants you and that he wants to restore you. And in that moment, he's given you reasons to want more of him. Reasons that say, wow, if this is who God is, I do want eternity because he's worth having an eternity with. And so even when God speaks truthfully to you and he pulls back the layers and you get to see your own heart, it stings, but it never crushes you because you realize that he has paid all the penalty that, that you have racked up 
And he did that for the purpose of reconciling you to himself, to bring you back together when, when there's a gap. In other words, God always intends his truthfulness to restore relationships with himself. Sometimes some of us pull our punches a little bit. We're afraid, okay, look, uh, people are kind of apart and I'm afraid that if I say what I'm really thinking, then I'm just gonna drive us even further apart. God enters into this with a very different perspective. He goes, no, we're, we're, we're already apart. We're not on the same page. And so I'm going to speak honestly for the sake of what? For the sake of bringing us back together. And when that's been your experience with your God, you start to want to give that away to other people. And by God's grace and kindness, that's what happened in my living room on that Easter afternoon. It's been very easy to harangue my family, very easy to withdraw from them. By God's grace, I chose a different option that afternoon. It was harder, but it was better. One that required me, very similar to the way God does, to step up and plead with my family to recognize that when I talk, it's not because I like hearing the sound of my voice. It's because I want what's best for them and that they need to get on board with what I'm offering them. Why? Because it's for their sake. Now, why did I do that this afternoon? It's not because I'm a wonderful guy. I could talk with you about the way that I blew up at the dinner table last night and had to apologize to my son. I have lots of those spectacular failures that we could talk about. Bring my wife in here. She could verify all of that. I am not a wonderful guy. I have a wonderful God. I have a God who did not reject Adam and Eve when they rejected him. And because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he has not rejected me either. And so that afternoon... My family might not be with me there in the, in, in the living room, but I'm not completely alone. My God is there too, because he does not treat me the way that I am tempted to treat my family. He does not abandon me. He does not drive me away from him, does not collapse into himself and said he's there with me that afternoon and he's still not treating me badly despite all of my temptations. That means regardless of what my family does next, I lose absolutely nothing by trying to respond to them with grace. I've already got grace flowing into me that is way more than I can ever absorb. And so even if everything goes horribly wrong with my family, from that moment forward, my God will still not treat me badly. He'll still treat me well. That allows me then to step into the middle of one of my little people's pathway. And I held up my hand. I said, no, stop. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to brush my hair get the little attitude, like, who are you, dad, to tell me what I can do in your house? I, I looked and I said, I told you earlier that we're leaving soon. Why didn't you get ready then? I was reading a book. So you were thinking about what you wanted to do or what I asked you to do? A little softer this time, what I wanted to do. When I said get in the van, I was thinking about what would be good for our whole family. I was thinking about the five of us. I'm thinking about our grandparents. I'm thinking about seven people. How many people were you thinking about? Just one. I said, honey, I love you. And that means that you cannot live your life this small all the time, wrapped up in yourself like you're the only person here. Get in the van. Now, what did I just do? I used the voice that God has given me to speak in such a way that I could invite a little person to repent, to realign with Jesus and realign with the rest of us. And what happened next was amazing. It does not always happen this way. Again, this is not a parenting gimmick that's going to make all your dreams come true. 
But that little person actually asked as we're driving away if we could pray. And they led the rest of us in confessing to God and to each other how we had been so self-absorbed. That change of heart then what? It impacted the rest of the van, rippled throughout everyone else. And we had a time of reconciliation. Afterward, we spent the rest of the ride engaged in each other's lives. We're talking, we're playing the roadside games together. That was a movement outward from them that then the rest of us also engaged in. And that outward movement continued even while we were with grandparents. That's our opportunity, not just as parents, it's our opportunity as images of God. I need to speak in ways that represent the creator's heart to the people around me. And I also need to hear his heart from others when they speak into my life. So I need my wife, Sally, to step into my world when I'm frazzled by things at home and say to me, I think you need to take a walk. And I think you need to get yourself right with the Lord so that you can come back and live a little more patiently with us. Or I need my daughter. She did this when she was much younger. When she could see the look of frustration that comes across my face, she, I needed her to step up and, and to give me the little caution and say, easy, dad. I need my colleague to prop herself up on my office door frame and say, you don't need me to tell you that your lifestyle isn't healthy right now, do you? I have to have that. I need people to speak to me from the depths of grace that they've experienced from Jesus. He put them in my life as his representatives so that I'll draw closer to Christ and then also closer to them. And you have that same calling with the people around you. It's the calling to drink deeply of his grace and kindness to you and then gently, confidently talk to your friends and family out of that grace. And you're talking to them to give them the chance of longing to realign their lives with him and reestablish relationship with you. In other words, you want to take the long view of parenting. You want to build your relationship with your children one conversation at a time. Now, in the book, give a bunch of different ideas on the skills that you can actually go about doing that. Let me give a couple tools, um, in case you don't decide to read the book, uh, just a couple things that'll help you generate these kind of conversations that invite people to a relationship that they might actually be willing to have. I think one of the most important things that I can say is the hardest one. You need to think. And in order to do that, you have to make time to think. You have to slow life down enough so that you can think. You're trying to build relationships. You're trying to use words to build relationships that are going to invite people to a 30, 40, 50 year relationship that's worth ha having. Those kind of conversations don't just happen. They're built very slowly. They're built over time. They're built with great intentionality. And that means that you have to build into your world time to think. And that's just hard in our contemporary society. I don't know what it's like out there in Washington. On the East Coast, it's nuts. Uh, we're surrounded here by a culture that does not value thoughtfulness in conversations. What do we value instead? We value the soundbite, the acidic quip, the sly innuendo, the spontaneous insult, the unstoppable torrent of words that don't let you get anything in edgewise. Those are the most valued weapons uh, in a conversational assault. And so a lot of people from my vantage point tend to believe, they don't say it out loud, but they tend to believe that the faster they speak, the sharper they are, the harsher, the better. Being glib, just sheer wordiness, that scores many more points over a quiet, 
carefully reasoned approach. And then you go to the book of Proverbs and you're introduced in the book of Proverbs to two very different people. You're introduced to a person who's wise and you're introduced to a person who's a fool and you are given lists of characteristics that help you tell the two apart. Now on your outline, I've listed the characteristics so you don't have to try scribbling all of this down, but maybe you wanna spend some time in the book of Proverbs and what, what do you start to discover? You learn that wise people are very measured in what they say. They weigh their words carefully in Proverbs 15. They are in control of what comes out of their mouths, chapter 12. They are intentional when they speak, chapter 16. They're thoughtful. They consider the potential of future effect of their words also in chapter 16. In other words, they take time to think about things, chapter 14. They do have a response in conversations but they're willing to turn it over. They're willing to consider, they're willing to reconsider it. They don't say the very first thing that pops into their head or they, or let their mouths run away with them, chapter 10. And so as a result, their words benefit other people, chapter 16. They help and heal those who listen, chapters 10 and 12. Foolish people, on the other hand, shoot their mouths off. They just react immediately. They are impulsive. And so you get these awful descriptions of the fool. Chapter 12, they blurt. Chapter 15, they gush. Chapter 12, they speak recklessly. They speak in their haste to stay what's on their mind. Chapter 29, they just chatter on endlessly. Uh, Chapter 12, they give this quick, off-the-cuff, speedy response without really taking the time to consider what they're saying or to consider the effect that it's going to have. And not surprisingly, they do damage others, chapter 12. I think often that's their intent in a war of words, or at least it's been mine. What I think is surprising, however, is that their words often bring greater harm to themselves, chapters 10 and 18. And so what initially looks like a power move on their part to verbally subdue someone else, it backfires and it entangles them. It creates even greater problems, chapter 18. In other words, on this side of heaven, What is it that comes quickly, effortlessly, spontaneously, loudly, is foolishness. Wisdom takes time. That is so important. I I, I can't overestimate. That's so important to remember when you're upset, when you're angry, when you're in the middle of a confrontation with your child. Your first instincts may not be your best. They are not my best. (laughs) Most all the time, they're usually pretty bad. And so I would just urge it, learn the skill of pausing and taking the time to think. And you can even verbally communicate. I I need a moment. Can can, can I have, just just let me think for a minute. I have to say that that I have, that I continue to spend hours thinking about what I need to say to my family. I have this sort of little walk around my neighborhood that I regularly go on. And and it's a mapped out walk. I feel like a little bit like a rat in a maze. I, I, I don't need to know where the maze is. And what that does is it allows my feet to do something while my head is engaged. And I spend a lot of time on those walks, thinking about my family, praying, thinking about what is it that I need to say for these issues that are coming up, not to manipulate them, but to give them the best possible chance of hearing what I think they need to hear. And from my vantage point, there's no shortcut for this. So number one, take the time to think before you speak. Second, 
I want to say something sound a little weird, uh, at least in an American context where success is sort of our goal. Learn to lead with your worst foot forward. One of the very uh, odd sounding things that I think will come out of your mouth, along with the good advice, the good direction that you're going to give is learning how to humbly confess where you've not been good. We want to read a passage out of the uh, Apostle Paul speaking to the Romans in chapter 7. And, and as I read this, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear that he's talking about his failures, but he's talking about them in public. Listen, listen to this, chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not live in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do... What I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. He's writing in circles there, and he's giving you a sense of what it's like to be on the inside of him. I think this is amazing. This is the master theologian who explored the mystery of Christ. He wrote most of our, much of our New Testament scriptures. He just said, I do not understand my own actions. What I'm doing doesn't make a bit of sense to me. It's crazy to do the things I hate to do. I don't get it. And you can hear that confusion. You can hear the frustration when he says, for I do not do what I want, but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. It's good. He's just like, wait, I, I, I can't even follow you after a while, Paul. It's almost like he's saying, I like what I see in the law. I agree with it. I know that if I love my neighbor as myself, this would be a good world to live in. And I want that world. I want a world where you trust me and I trust you. I want a world where I want the best for you, where I don't want to use you. I want a world where I'm honest with you, where you're honest with me, because we both know that we're not going to hurt each other. I want kids to experience that world. I want them to grow up in that world and become that world. And I ruin that world. There's a real soul struggle here within Paul. And if you go back through that passage, you look and, and you discover that the verb tenses are present tense, not past tense. Not, this is not some historical abstract wrestling that he's describing. This is a present, ongoing personal struggle. He's, re he's, he's wrestling with, I don't do the good things that I want to do. Very explicit with his struggle. We, we all start to recognize ourselves in it. We can identify with him. And then he does something very special. He points us beyond the struggle to a deeper reality, that we've been given a new nature by the God who rescued us. That's Paul's true self, the me that really counts, the one that is no longer wrapped up in doing evil. He's saying there's been an internal change. I can still do bad things, Paul says, but I don't love them. Instead, I want something different. I desire something much better. My fundamental identity has changed. Here's the payoff for us. Why am I going through all this? Your fundamental identity, if you're in Christ, has also changed. 
despite the times when you do what you do not want to do, despite the times when you say to your children what you do not want to say, your fundamental identity has changed. And as you keep reading Paul's letter, you learn that there's hope for you because there's hope for Paul. That God's never going to give up on you. He's never going to allow anything to get in between him and the new you that he's made you to be. And so you walk away with hope that God is bigger, more invested in rescuing you than you are invested in undermining your relationships with your kids. None of what you do is bad enough to keep Christ away from you. Why do you have confidence there? Because Paul unpacked his own life and his own life experience of getting tangled up in sin to give you hope that Christ will rescue you in the same kind of way. In other words, he uses his struggle with sin and his embrace of Christ in the gospel as a way of forming relationship, which is a little odd. You can almost imagine somebody coming alongside of him from our American evangelicalism and say, you know, Paul, clearly I think you got some issues here. There are some things that you're going to need to take care of before you're actually able to go out and minister to anyone else. So maybe you should get some help, you know, see a counselor or something. Once you're straightened out, then you'll be ready to help other people. And Paul says, actually, no, it's my experience of sin and finding Christ in the middle of my what I'm wrestling with, finding the gospel. It doesn't disqualify me from ministry. Instead, it builds a bridge to other people who are also struggling. And so Paul is saying, I'm the biggest sinner in the room, which is good news for you. Why? Because as the biggest sinner in the room, I'm also the one who experiences the gospel the most. And because I experience the gospel the most, I'm actually a pretty decent guide in helping you find the gospel. Now, talking about my failings is not something I've always found easy. I am, by nature and by training, by upbringing, incredibly insecure, very hypersensitive. And so I have worked for years at projecting an image of someone who has all the right answers and who has a life that backs them up. Now, clearly, it's never been true just as weak, just as rebellious as anybody else. And yet I've longed for respect and I've hoped that that image would give it to me. So I went to a church um, where the pastors would talk from the front, actually again, Ange would be one of them, where they regularly talked about their own sins and failings, which just was astounding to me. I wonder how, how do you get the grace to admit those things to anyone, much less with a microphone? I, I, I'm not saying those things, I'm not whispering them privately. It amazed me, but it really helped me because it taught me how to interact better with God and with other people. So when my pastors confessed their sins, I realized, oh, life is not over when your image cracks. Instead, the cracks can actually be the life that can be the beginning of a life of real integrity, of relating to other people on the basis of grace, not on the basis of an imaginary ideal. Very painful for me to learn, very slow really well worth the trouble. And I've seen my own family benefit as I've learned to be more transparent about my shortcomings. And so when I've told on myself for things like gossiping or for bullying or for being violent or stealing or eating too much, drinking too much, seeing things I shouldn't, lying, manipulating, cheating, losing myself in entertainment and pleasure, I've noticed that as I am willing to share those things with my kids, their heads pick up. The story, the interaction, the gospel is more engaging to them than the rug pattern. 
And they start to realize that, okay, dad and we are pretty much the same. <laughs> Which means if there's hope for dad after the horrible things that he's done, then there's certainly hope for them as well. And I think part of parenting is the awareness that the expectation, not the desire, but the expectation that your kids are gonna do things wrong. And that those times are actually an opportunity that can bring you and your child closer together because those moments bring you both closer to God. Because in that moment, their heart is revealed in ways that they may not have been aware of, they may have been hiding from you. And in that moment, they live in a sovereign God's universe who's exposing those things with good purposes in mind. My experience, however, is that many parents don't want that. Given the choice, many of us would prefer just to have good kids instead of kids who need to be rescued from the mess that they just made. Many of us want good kids without reflecting very long on the reality that the Pharisees were the epitome of good kids. They were the models of their day of what it meant to be morally upright and virtue, virtuous. They, they tithed everything that they owned. They regularly fasted. They observed all the religious activities of their day. They were the ones who were in synagogue whenever the doors were opened. They loved studying and discussing the scriptures. They gave themselves to learning, to carrying out every bit of God's commands that they could. They were good kids. They were the good kids who lived down the street that you wanted your kids to play with <laughs> because you were hoping that some of that would rub off on them. They were the kids that you wanted your kids to marry because they were the ones who were going to grow up to be leaders of their community. They were the pillars of society who were utterly bankrupt when it came to knowing God. And so Jesus could stand right in front of them. And they said, messenger of Satan, not Messiah. They studied the scriptures. Jesus says in John chapter five, they searched for all the wrong things. And because of that, they didn't recognize him. And so they tested him whenever they could. They did not value grace or mercy, but they were like the older brother of the prodigal son. They held themselves back while everybody else was enjoying the kindness that God was showering on them. And it was this incredibly painful irony. They had this good looking exterior that masked their inner wickedness. And so Jesus said, your moral and your religious efforts, it's like washing the outside of the cup and the inside is filthy. It's the equivalent of decorating tombs while the corpses inside are rotting. I think the, the saddest thing of all is that they masked their evil from themselves. You never get a hint that they had any idea just how far from God that they were. They believed that image, just like I believe that image, that they presented to everybody else. And that image is what kept them insulated from their own spiritual poverty. They were good kids whose goodness kept them from knowing God. And my fear for many of us in the church is that that's our goal for our children. We don't recognize it, but we want our kids to grow up to be good Pharisees, people who look like they have their act together even if that goodness doesn't go all the way down. So most of the time when parents come looking for help for their children, they say something like, we want the best for our kid. We want him to grow up to be successful, to have a good life, but we're seeing things at home that are gonna mess that up. He's fighting with everybody, he won't listen to what we say, just wants to hang out with his friends and play video games. So can you help us figure out how we can get him to behave? How we can get him to do his homework, how we can get him to get good grades, to clean up his room, to excel in sports, to be successful, to listen to us at home, stop causing trouble. How can we apply pressure 
So it'll stop embarrassing us and do what he needs to do. You got anything there in that Bible about how he's going against God's plans for his life, how God's going to be upset with him if he doesn't stop? In other words, parents ask, how can we control our child's behavior so that they'll do the things that we won't think they should be doing? This breaks my heart. There are almost no parents who come saying, the greatest thing that our daughter could ever do is drink deeply of the grace that God offers to her, but she just does not have a taste for it. She seems so well put together or so set on doing what she feels like. She doesn't really feel a need of God. She doesn't really want God. Can you help us understand how we might help her know and experience the grace of God? How can we be instruments used by God to help her taste something so wonderful, so deep, that she'll be drawn to it, that she'll want more of that God? To realize that she's making decisions that are going to lead her to throw away the best relationship she could ever have with the one who made her. How can we help her experience deep love and point her in a direction to fill her emptiness with something real? No one asks those questions. Your child's failure is a God-ordained opening for you to help them see a much better future than they've imagined for themselves. It's a healthy wake-up call. It's a precious opportunity because in that moment, the image is shattered. <laughs> and it's an opportunity you can't afford to waste. It's a moment that you need to look for and not be surprised by. I expect my kids to have problems. They have my DNA. If the goal of parenting is to produce morally upright people, mine were doomed from the point of conception. And so the question is not whether they're going to create broken pieces of their lives. The question is whether I get to know about those pieces. And the question is how I get to know. And so one of my parenting goals is to stick close enough to help pick up the pieces that I know that they're going to make. And to do that, I have to invite them to bring those pieces into my world and to let me help. Dana, I have one story left to tell. Can I go an extra two minutes? I will let you talk as long as you wish. So there you go. You all heard that. My middle son, Timmy, made a lot of pieces one night. By the way, I have permission from all my kids to tell these stories. Um, so I'm not telling tales out of school. In fact, I get help editing to make sure that I'm telling them correctly. Tim was playing center field in a baseball tournament. And, and there was this line drive that, that was hit and I just, it was going to split the outfield. I expected to watch Tim's back as he went sprinting off to get it. And I watched this little guy coil into the ground like a spring and launch himself into the air. And he snags this ball before falling back down. And it was one of those moments that, you know, you live for as, as a parent, you, you know, that none of your kids are going to be major league players, but in that moment, you think they might. Parents go wild, the ump signals out, the innings over, the boys ran off the field. And the other team challenged the call. Tim had sort of done a little funny thing as he gathered himself up from the ground and the other team argued he dropped the ball. And instead of backing his initial call, the ump dumped his responsibility on a 10 year old. Set up behind the plays, long way from deep center, hadn't seen the whole play clearly. So he walks over to my son and says, did you catch the ball? Now, Tim's surrounded by three coaches, 10 teammates in a close game, and Tim says, yes. But I wasn't sure. A lot closer to the outfield, it really did look like he scrambled to stuff something back into his glove. 
after the game ended, I walked with him back to the van, praising him for all of his good plays, especially at play. That, that was really amazing, even if he dropped it. And then bending down, I got eye level with him and I said, tell me something. Did you really catch that ball or did it fall out? He said, no, I really caught it. Okay, I said, I, I, I still didn't believe him. But I said, okay, but listen to me. I just want you to know that if you ever do something wrong, like lie about catching a ball when you didn't, you can come talk to me about it, okay? He said, yeah, okay. And I figured, okay, well, I guess that's the end of it. We get home, he and his sister follow me all around. I'm watering the garden, walking through the house. I log on to my computer. Finally, sister goes off, does something else. And Tim follows me into the office and he says, dad, remember when you said I could tell you anything? He said, yeah. Tears in his eyes. He tells me that his glove slipped off his hand after he caught the ball before he hit the ground. I think that was a really hard hit. They talked about how pandemonium just broke out around him, how everyone on his team was telling him, that was a really great catch, wasn't it, Timmy? The other team was shouting, no, it wasn't. The ump's asking him questions and his coach saying, you don't have to answer him. And all he wants in that moment was for people to think he did good, that he made a great catch. So under all that pressure, internal, external, he told them what they wanted to hear, even though he didn't believe it. And immediately he hated himself for doing it. He, he felt that heavy weight that comes from lying. He felt like his team didn't deserve to win. He was secretly hoping they wouldn't. And I listened there to him in my office, more proud of him than when he laid out for the ball. Because he wasn't owning up to something wrong because he got caught. He got away with it, but he wasn't okay with it. And far from being hardened, his conscience was working the way that God designed it. And so here he is courageously letting me see the real him. That took at least as much courage as it would have to have owned the truth in front of his team, but it also took an invitation. as an invitation that he thought was worth the risk of admitting that he had lied. He said to me, if you hadn't told me that I could come to you, I wouldn't have. But I thought about what you said all the way home and I couldn't wait to talk to you. He thanked me for inviting him. He shared his relief that I wasn't angry with him. And I said, how can I be angry with you? And I confessed to him, shared with him times that I had recently, just a couple of days ago, embellished the truth so that people would laugh at the story that I was telling. And I told him how I realized in that moment that their laughter was more important to me in that moment than God's enjoyment of how I told the story. And I talked with him about how I got away with it, how I hated myself afterward. And I said, you, you and I are not all that different. We're pretty much the same. And so we prayed together. We asked Jesus to forgive my son, but we also celebrated God's work in him and me to open up the dark corners of our lives that we could keep secret. If your children are gonna know and experience the grace of God, it means that they're first gonna to have to do something that requires the grace of God. To know and experience the grace of God means that your children are gonna get in trouble. Otherwise, how are they gonna to need to know the depths of God's kindness? As their parents, you are the first experience of what his kindness and grace look like and feel like. So here's my plea with you tonight. Please don't live for them to be perfect. Instead, live so that they can experience perfect love through their imperfections. 
And as you give them a taste of that kind of love through what you say to them and how you say it, it's going to signal to them, here's what they could maybe expect from God. So rather than recoiling in shock when they mess up, embrace that moment. Use your words to embrace them just like God has used his words to embrace you. That, I, Bill, I appreciate everything serving us tonight. Uh, there was a, it's funny, I'm paraphrasing the things that I've been writing down frantically, trying to get exactly how you said it, but something you said in there, now in relationship with God, who does speak this way, and we can learn and understand, he um, obligates himself to speak to us in this way, as we live with him in a gracious way. We start knowing what grace sounds like, and my words that sounding start sounding a little bit more like his. I just, being a dad of three kids, I mean, it's, it's the beauty of we live in a fallen world, and if we don't expect our children to fall, then really i mean what what is grace what is the meaning of grace in in reality if we're not you know being redeemed from the failures that happen around us so um to everybody in here uh feel free send your questions use the q a tab or you can send us in a chat um bill i'm just going to start off with a few questions while people are sending questions into you um and i guess you get to veto whatever question you don't want to answer but i mean you know I <laughs> Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I'll just start this one. Um, so we know this book was written in the context of parenting, but how do you think this could this type of material in this book could uh, work in a world, uh, and especially in a world that uh, this world just heaps weapons, words of weapons all over the place? So how how could the content from the book really tie into just the state of our, our world right now? I think, Dane, um, I can't remember if I shared this with you in one of our previous conversations or not, but, but frankly, I, I think that the concepts in the book really are um, just about for any relationship. And um, in, in that sense, it's, I, I mentally conceived of it as a theology of conversation, but nobody cares what I think about theology of conversation, but people always want to know how to talk to their kids. So I attempted to disguise it as a parenting book, but I really think that as we learn to speak truthfully to people in a way that builds them up, as we speak honestly to people to make them stronger, who's not going to want that? And who's not going to hear that and say, that's, that's engaging, that's, that, that, that's enticing, I, I, I'd like some more of that. And that I think, opens doors to allow you to talk a little bit about who the author of those kinds of words really is. That's right. That's right. Well, there's another question. Um, there's a tendency among Christians to do the Holy Spirit's job when it comes to changing people around them, specifically uh, with parents. And I've noticed this uh, specifically when I speak to my kids um, in, and instantly expect change. As parents, do you believe we are causing anxiousness in our children when we jump on them? for every mistake that they make. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All of yep. the above. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yes, and it's so hard not to do that. We care desperately about them. Um, we care about the way that they're impacting us. And, and so for a variety of reasons, uh, we think we have to get that done today. I th okay, so so I, I help. I find continuums helpful. 
on the one end of the continuum is um, it's all up to me. There is no Holy Spirit involved. And therefore I have to marshal incredible arguments and be really, really convincing um, or my kids are ruined. And uh, okay, clearly not the case. On the other hand, um, well, the, you know, it, it's all up to God. God will save them if he wants to save them and, and he'll, and you think, no, that's not, that's not the case either. I, we probably don't want me to do this right now, um, but you go through the entire scripture and what do you see? You see constantly God saying, you need to talk to people. This is how my community grows. So uh, actually this, this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching out of Deuteronomy 6 briefly, um, which is the passage where you, you communicate, you teach and talk about these commands that God's given to you um, all the time. So, so when you're sitting at home, when you're walking by the way, when you're lying down, when you're getting up and, and you're just surrounding your family in this sea of words, I think there is a real responsibility on us to communicate. This is God's world. This is what his world is like. And he has rescued us. He's brought us out of Egypt in order to create a new community. And therefore we have to inform people, our family, what this new community actually is. That is on us. On the other hand, it is not my responsibility to make other people like that world. My responsibility stops short at the person barrier. So my responsibility is to communicate, this is what God's world is like. It's my child's responsibility to say, I want more of that. And I can't force them to want that. I can require them in my home to hear that. Maybe just one, one, one more thought here. Um, Jacob blesses me. If you do the math, Jacob turns to God. He has that wrestling match with God when he's about 100. And so, you know, he, he leaves home in order to go off and get married. And so I've, I've always thought, you know, he's 20, 30 years old. No, he's about 70. And so he grows up in Isaac's tents and he has this complete abandonment of God, has no interest in who God is, and God doesn't stop pursuing him. And this was very important to me during one of the, our kids' lives, during a phase that lasted for quite a while, um, where I had to remind myself, God tends to work sometimes in decades, not days. And my responsibility is to continue to communicate the world that we live in is God's. Here's the responsibility. You have to respond. Here's God's grace. Here's his kindness. And I will trust that God will continue to be the hound of heaven. And I shouldn't be. That's great. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions. It's funny. A lot of people in this uh, has my cell phone too. So I'm getting like text messages. So I'm like, all right, which screen do I go to? <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'll just start with some of the Q&A questions. Uh, first one, do you find you need to change how you talk to or, and or parent with each of your children and their different personalities? Absolutely. Uh, and this is actually uh, one of the places where I really mess things up with our second one. Um, first child, in some sense, needed to know dad's in charge. And so uh, the world is not scary and it's not out of control. And so for her, in some sense, me being larger than life was helpful. It was secure, secure, provided some sense of security. That same persona terrified my son. Um, 
And so what it did was it drove us apart. I did, I was, I was so stupid, did not figure this out for like four years. Um, it took the next six to build a connection with him so that he would trust me. And, and so, yeah, you, you kind of wish, you know, where, where's the printout and the readout for each child so that when they come home, you're like, okay, be really big for this one. Do not be big for this. Yeah. It, it, no, you, you have to spend a lot of time studying and you think who was built for this? And God says, I will parent you so that you can parent them. Okay. Lord, bring it. Yeah. It's, it's so funny when my wife and I left with our first child out of the, uh, <laughs> out of the hospital and just, they just hand you a kid and it's like, wait, you trust me with this kid? I, are you sure? <laughs> they insist that you have a car seat. And you think, really? <laughs> that, that, that's the most important thing that you think I'm going to need. Oh, boy. Good thing we have the church. Oh, my gosh. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, next question. When responding in grace, there's always the risk of being taken advantage of. Do you have any advice for identifying when the line has been crossed from grace to enabling bad behavior? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's like, yes and amen. Okay, next question. <laughs> so here's a couple things. Um, that's a great question, and, and, and it doesn't have a one-word answer. The overarching approach to everything that we do is subsumed under grace in the same way that it's subsumed under that umbrella when God parents us, which means that when he answers our prayers and gives us exactly what we've been asking for, that's grace. When he does not give us exactly what we've been asking for, that's grace. When he in allows things to enter into our world that we really don't want, there's a purpose in there that's driven by grace. And so grace, I know that the, the person asking that question doesn't mean it this way, but let me say it this way. Grace does not mean being nice. Grace means that I am constantly thinking, I will sacrifice and lay down my life so that you have the best chance possible of living a good life. Not always the life you wanted, but a good life. And so whether I am, um, interrupting, bringing discipline, all of those things have to be under that umbrella of grace. So there are times where uh, grace means, I forgive you, there, 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 I will absorb all the consequences. There are other times where I say, if I absorb all the consequences, you will take advantage of this, or you're likely to, and you won't learn the thing that you were supposed to learn. And therefore, because of grace, I allow you the goodness of the consequences that are built into this world by a good and loving God. Uh, that's great. Um, this one, the next question was, uh, as both a father of a three-month-old, there's some really great stuff you have said tonight, though I won't be able to have a conversation with my daughter for quite some time, but I'm also a son. Do you have any thoughts about how to have some of these conversations but from the child up to the father's perspective. I have a lot of thoughts and, and a lot of them would be personal. Um, oh boy. 
let's take your, 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 your daughter first. Um, my wife and I, when I was uh, in school, lived in the basement of, of a couple who were social workers. And the, the wife of the couple said to us one point in time, she said, you and your wife talk to the kids like you expect them to understand. And they do. <laughs> and what was she saying? She was saying that we spoke in ways that took them seriously. And so my kids have grown up hearing about how out of the heart the mouth speaks. And, and so we would say that long before there was a cognitive uh, ability to even know what those words meant, long before they had a, a realization of themselves as an individual self, but we just surrounded them with that kind of world because we wanted that world to be normal for them. I love testimonies where people say, I, I'm now owning the faith and I have absolutely no idea when I became a believer that I've, I've always known who God is. I, I'm now claiming all of that, but I've always known. So I think there's that end of things. Talk anyway, talk so that your kids understand what those words sound like work very hard to bring theology down to the level of your child. Um, on the other hand, um, why would you not want to speak to your parents in these kinds of ways? All right, so when, 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 I, when, I like, when, when I have the time and I like being provocative, I will ask people, how long do you think you're gonna live? And most of the time people sort of roll their eyes because they think it's a stupid question. And they say, I don't know. And I say, no, seriously, put a number on it. And they're like, okay, like, you know, 70, 80 years or whatever. I'm like, isn't it more like 70 or 80,000? 70 or 80 million? I mean, that's, we, we talk about eternity and we're talking about life that one is, once is conceived has no end. It doesn't end in either with Christ or it doesn't end away from Christ, but it doesn't end. What does that mean? 70 or 80,000 years from now, I've got about like a 30 year head start on my kids. That seems kind of big now. It's not going to then. So who are my children? My children are potential future peers. Uh, already as young adults, they have surpassed me in so many different ways. And it's just wonderful to, to see that. Um, so our desire was always to raise them with the potential of offering them that future relationship, if they would be interested and if they want, obviously it's, it's a two-way street. That's exactly the same way that I think about my mom and my dad. My mother's passed away, but I've, I've, I want to have that same kind of long-term relationship if they're willing. Now, sometimes that's going to mean that you take a greater role in initiating. You know, I, I don't know this person's parents and, and what kind of background they had, but a lot of our parents, or a lot of the parents of people that I talk to, uh, they haven't had all of the advantages that some of us have had. And so uh, you're not trying to parent your parents, but you are taking responsibility for the, your end of the relationship and engaging them to the extent that they're willing. That's so good. I, I always used to think through for myself, it's like, 
you know, a young kid comes in, you know, have a, have a kid. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I'll, you know, practice these things when they get older to understand. It's like, no, we build in these patterns now. So when they become older to understand, they're already a part of what we do, a rhythm that we do. So that's great. Yeah. Um, an, another question I got, how do you and your spouse handle a difference in opinion with each other in approaches to discipline and technique when it's in the moment of a sinful act by the child? I mean, my tendency is to just run as fast as I can to just <laughs> get all the frustration out and then come back and try to deal with it. <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. And again, it, it's, it doesn't have just a quick, fast answer. I, I, in some sense, I, are, I alluded to some of that earlier when I said you have to take time to think. If you and your spouse are not on the same page, then you're saying that there is a much deeper issue underneath that you need the time to really work that out. I don't tend to find that the heat of the moment is the best time to work most of those things out. I have sat um, my children down at different times and said, I don't trust me right now. Uh, I, I need to go pray because I don't think I'll be good to you. Or, or I have said, you know, very similar kind of daddy needs a timeout. I think there's a place where you in the moment, if that's gonna create greater friction between you and your spouse, I think you have the freedom to look at your child and say, we're gonna to need to work something out with you, but first mom and dad need to be on the same page. And then I think you make sure that you take the time to do that. Now, if this is more than a five or 10 minute conversation to get on the same page, you have a different issue. And, and that says, okay, let, let's spend some time Maybe we have some close friends that we can talk this out with because apparently talking with each other hasn't gotten us there, or we have a trusted uh, pastor, a trusted counselor, somebody that we can go to and say, we're struggling and we know that we are not doing good for our child, our children, um, by not, not dealing with this. Yeah, that's and, great. And maybe just one last thing. Yeah, please. Um, Wherever we end up, it has to be because we recognize this is scripturally what God's called us to. And so if one of us says, well, I just don't believe X, Y, or Z, um, okay, where, where, where are we going in scripture? How are we learning? Um, how are we learning to parent in the ways that God parents us? That's great. Um, just a few more questions. looks like we have about eight more minutes. Um, so after a full day of teaching and parenting on uh, a broad spectrum of ages, I often feel unable to parent in grace and wisdom by dinner. What encouragement could you offer for this weary parent? P.S. One of our older children is our most challenging, argumentative, and engaging in the evening. <laughs> Of course. <clears throat> so a couple thoughts. Um, parenting's exhausting. Uh, there, there's no, nothing uh, to shortcut that. Just, uh, my wife and I got married. I worked in a thrift store that fronted 
we, we, we were a thrift store, but it was really a job and life rehabilitation center. We hired people off the street, life controlling issues, and we used the workplace to disciple. That comes with a, an array of constant interactions all day long. We had probably about 200 people flow through the store dur during any given day. I'm an introvert. I came home absolutely spent. And, and to, to, to really, to, you're laughing at my lack of wisdom here. Um, home was- I'm laughing, I'm laughing because I'm an extrovert, but I am also very exhausted by the end of the day. <laughs> Yeah, we lived right across the street. So I had 50 feet before I was home with my brand new wife. And I discovered that over the first nine months or so, I was starting fights every night. Three, four times a week, there would be a big enough fight that we would go to our separate corners. Both of us at that time fought very cold. That was kind of the way that our families did. And I would sit there in the dark feeling utterly wretched because I started it and I knew that. And then I would do it again a couple of days later, realizing I'm what, what's going on, completely sinful, really screwed up. Um, I just want a break. And, and so I'm creating a few minutes of downtime eventually figured this out, repented to my wife. And I said, can I ask for something? Can I come home, say hi to you, give you a kiss, ask you how you are. And most of the time just go sit quietly for 20 minutes, um, not for the sake of running away from you, but to recharge so that I can actually be with you. My wife's a very wise, prudent lady. She said, well, of course, why wouldn't I want that? Um, that was a really good pattern to start to build in. I've, I've urged other guys, they have a commute on the way home to, you know, don't, ve don't veg out, but use that as an opportunity to recharge with the Lord. Because what I started to realize is that my family is my number one ministry. I have the privilege of serving other people in the church. That is not my primary ministry in life. My primary ministry is to my family. And so ministry doesn't end at the end of the day. Actually, ministry starts. And it was that shift that was helpful to realize, no, I'm coming home to be engaged with the people that live here, uh, which means, Lord, you're going to have to really supply a lot of energy because there are days when I just don't have it. Um, I know that doesn't answer all the questions for this person who's asking um, but I think without that, I don't have anything to give to my, the people I live with. You're muted. See, you'd think after so long with a pandemic, I'd learn to unpush the mute button, but apparently that's still a very small thing. Ah, we have like two more questions that I'll throw at you. Um, Good. My time. Oh, okay. Perfect. Well, then maybe I'll just uh, answer, ask a few more and we'll kind of go. And whoever wants to stay on, this is being recorded. So if you need to jump off, uh, feel free to, but uh, I'll, we'll just ask a few more questions. So uh, another person said, we read your book and we absolutely loved it. Uh, we have a newborn baby and she is our first. We are brand new to parent to the parenting world. Do you have any advice on how to start good patterns from the beginning as she grows and we start conversations? What are the best structures to use, like family devotions or prayer? 
And then it's a long question mark. <laughs> I think the way that I would answer that, the best structures you can give are between mom and dad. What are your communication patterns like? And what are the kinds of things you ask and kinds of ways that you talk to each other? Um, you're, you're, you're obviously gonna teach communication and communication skills to your child, um, but they're gonna pick a lot of that up as well. So uh, when I've been condescending to my wife, it really should not surprise me when the children are condescending to her and I have to repent at the same time that I have to enter into their worlds. Um, I think that one's huge. Devotions, really important. I'm gonna be transparent. We were horrible at that, at the regular time of, of um, unpacking scripture. I think our strength in our family was we really did try to tie all of the conversations and all of the interactions back into what our kids knew of the Lord. Uh, and to use that part of daily living as a way of communicating to them. We had the children's storybook Bibles. We read those uh, constantly. But really, I, I, and, and, and honestly, I think in, De in Deuteronomy 6, the emphasis is not have 24 hours of devotions as much as make sure that you're constantly communicating a a godly worldview to your kids and make sure that they understand they're made in his image. They're made because he loves them, wants them and calls them back to himself. Uh, that's great. Um, so how do you recommend parenting with words of grace within an unequally yoked marriage? We are often on a different page on parenting. My husband is a non-Christian and I'm a Christian. So the, the call to experience God's parenting is not going to obviously mean a whole lot to him. But I think the, the sections on uh, the ways that we go off the rails, sarcasm, criticism, or just stuffing, um, I think that that does apply across the board because I think that's simply saying this is what it's like to communicate in a healthy uh, way. I do remember one couple that I spoke with, this is years and years ago. Um, he was not a believer, she was, and they came, their marriage was not working well. And at one time he got very frustrated with me. And he, you know, it was one of those moments where he moved sort of on the front of his seat and he said, I don't want to hear anything more about God. Just tell me what I have to do in order to make my marriage work. And I thought, okay, I can go there. And I said, great, don't say another unkind thing to your wife. Do you think you can do that? And not, not the way I would recommend counseling at this point in time. Little, in my days when I was far more arrogant than I am now. And, and, and I was stunned by his response because you know, he didn't expect me to come back with that kind of intensity. And he looks at me and goes, okay. I'll do that. <laughs> and I thought, I can't even do sarcasm right with this guy. They came back a couple weeks later. He says, I can't say anything good anywhere. I'm nasty to my wife. 
I'm nasty to the guys I play softball with. I'm running them down the other day and I'm realizing I just can't do this. I think that's one of the places where the gospel then starts to shine. And that's, I think, the law often does that, right? Here, here's God's commands and they are incumbent on all of us. And then we start to see how far short we fall. And that's when we start to realize I do need the grace of God. Oh, that's great. Um, another question that came in, <laughs> this person that wrote this, I just want to reach out and give them a hug, but they wrote it anonymously. So hopefully they'll come up to me and on, on a Sunday and I can just give them a, a COVID side hug or whatever it is. But uh, as a parent, I personally always feel like a failure. Talk to me. Can you encourage some of us as young parents? Oh, yeah, I also want to give them a hug. And part of that is because I've had a lot of people give me hugs. Um, so speaking personally, my failures stand out to me far more than my successes. Um, 99 people can say something positive to me and the one negative is the one that I, that, that sticks with me because it resonates with what goes on inside of me. Uh, and so for me to receive the love of God, that, that, that's something I continue to grow in. And it's one of the things that I love about the gospel because the gospel does not need a positive starting point. In fact, the gospel thrives in working with people um, from a negative starting point. The gospel doesn't enter any one of our lives because, hey, we're doing pretty good. We just need a little bit of extra help. Instead, the gospel comes to us when we're like minus 50 and, and you know, way, 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 way behind the curve. And God says, I love you too much to leave you there. And so my encouragement is constantly to come up out of myself um, and look to someone who is bigger than I am, better than I am, and who I can trust more than I trust my own assessment of myself. There's a passage in the book of first John that talks about, here's how we set our hearts at rest when our hearts condemn us. And it's to remember that God is greater than our hearts. I was there a couple, I guess last week and a half ago, spending time in that passage, because that's what I needed to hear. Um, my, my, urging to anybody when they struggle there is your assessment is probably in some sense, I don't know, it, it's probably not even bad enough, right? I mean, I, I, I don't see how bad I really am. I'm still learning those kinds of things. And yet God loves me anyway. And he takes me where I am and he loves me way more than I've begun to uh, experience. And so with Paul, I pray, chapter three of Ephesians, that I would experience the love of Christ. Not that I would love Christ more, but that I would experience his love more. The length, the breadth, the height, the depth, and the width of it. Uh, that's so great. I always think of uh, Robert Murray McShane, the old 26-year-old old theologian that was probably way more smarter than I am at his young age. But when he said, for every one look at, so at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Yeah. It's just, Yeah. I've, I've had to, it's so funny when uh, your kids are screaming outside the door and you're giving yourself a timeout and you're yelling at them, daddy's taking a timeout. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> because apparently daddy needs it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Bill, I just want to say this time has been so amazing. Um, and I appreciate and um, I know a lot of people were looking forward to utilizing this material and learning from you. Um, but just one quick question before I let you go. Um, but what is one parting shot you would give to our church community? Uh, in 2000, 2021, what, what's one parting thing you would like to say to us as a church community? Wow. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> do you have another hour? <laughs> regarding parenting or not regarding parenting? Uh, you know, we have a, an amazing community where we have young parents, we have older parents, non-Christians who are even a part of our community and, and brand new Christians. And so, you know, I would say not parenting, but if that's what we're sticking to the topic, go for it. <laughs> what would I say? I would say love Christ. I would say be passionate about Christ. I would say find him more delightful than you find anything else. Find him more satisfying than you find anything else. My prayer over the last several months has been, Lord, I, I need more of you because I'm, I'm dry and I'm worn out. And I think the more that we want him, the more that we're filled up by him, the more that we will express him, which is what my family needs. It's what, what my community needs. And it's what, def, it's what my church needs. That's great. Well, um, I wish I figured it out and was able to allow everybody else's faces to be on here, but you only get to see mine. Uh, but I think I, and I know I can speak for everybody here. We are so grateful for you, Bill. Thank you for the time tonight. Uh, next time I'm in Philly, I'm going to be sure to connect with you and also go and try those again, those Philly cheesesteak places and just see yet indeed, is it, what is it? Gino's or what's the other one? Should be Pat's, right? Pat's. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I just have to debate now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, see, now I can't think about it. Pat's yeah, there you is go. I grew up with. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, Bill, we'll thank you. Time together. I love it. Well, Bill, thank you for the time tonight, and I hope you have a great night. Absolutely. It was great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Well, everybody, we'll see you all soon. See ya. Peace.